0: Prayer. Father, thanks so much for a gorgeously beautiful morning, for your provision. For this time, we can come out to your house to study your word. I pray that you would open its pages to us that we may understand wondrous things from your word. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Last week, we uh, talked about faith, grace, and the gospel, and uh, what is the gospel, what things do you need to believe. And uh, one of the things I said, and you can, you know, if you want to listen to the podcast or look at the notes, There is an irreducible core to our gospel that you can't go below. All right. And uh, before we start today, I want to clarify what I mean by that a little bit. When a person comes to Christ, it's obvious that they don't know everything there is to know about Christ. Right. I mean, did you? How many of you were theologians when you came to know the Lord? See, I don't see any hands here. All right. Uh, That takes time. It takes time to learn those things. But when you came to know the Lord, there was a certain core of beliefs that you need to have a grasp on. And that's the core of the gospel. That, that is the essential core. You needed to know, for example, that you were a sinner, right? I mean, you've got to start there. If you don't have a problem, you're not going to solve or try to find a solution. Um, so you needed to know that you were a sinner. You needed to know that you were under divine judgment. You needed to know that you couldn't save yourself. Because why come to a Savior if you can save yourself, right? You can do that on your own. You can figure it out. So you needed to know that. You needed to know that Jesus Christ was God and He paid the penalty for your sin, that He took your place. And you needed to know that if you placed your faith in Him, He would save you, that He would redeem you. And those of you who are born again, you've done that. You've placed your faith in Christ. You have believed. You've asked Him to be your Lord and Savior. All right? But, for example, someone asked a few weeks ago, is it necessary to know or believe the virgin birth in order to be saved? We would put that as an essential, right? It it is an essential. But let me ask you a question. Do you believe that somebody from the get-go has to know about the virgin birth in order to be saved? Yeah, not necessarily, right? Now, what will happen if later on they deny the virgin birth altogether? and see Jesus as just a man. Then they weren't saved in the first place. You understand what I'm trying to get at here? Alright, it's not that we are theologians when we get out of the gate, but there are certain sort of ancillary truths, or I don't, I don't want to say ancillary, that's rather not a good thing. Um, there are certain truths that have implications for what we believe, that we may not have a full grasp on when we first come to know the Lord. But if you are truly born again and you have the Spirit of God in you, when you are shown that truth, what are you going to do? You're going to believe it, right? You're going to believe that truth. So, you know, for example, someone says, well, is it necessary to completely have a grasp on the Lordship of Christ in order to be saved? That you have to um, have a full understanding of that. Well, no, nobody does, right? But there, here's the other thing, there's not a denial of that. Let me say what I mean by that. If someone says, I want to come to Jesus as my Savior, I want to be saved, but I have no intention of obeying Him. I have no intention of making Him Lord of my life. But I do want to get out of hell, that's sort of a good thing to do. Um, is that person coming to Christ on Christ's terms? No, he's not. Or she is not. Now, you may not understand what that means, right? I mean, I'm still sorting out what this whole lordship means. As I work and the grow my life, I'm I'm finding more and more what that means. But I don't deny that he is lord of my life. I don't deny that. I'm not going to deny that. Does this sound confusing? Are you sort of seeing what I'm trying to get at from here? All right. Um, So when we talk about the gospel, we need to separate that that core that people need to believe in order to come to Christ. And then there are certain other truths that support that core theology that later on they will come to understand as they mature in their Christian faith. All right? But they will not deny those core truths as, at a later point. You're not going to come to Jesus as your Lord and Savior, take Him as your substitute for sin, and then say, well, He was just a man. Um, If you do that, that shows that you have no understanding of who Jesus really is, right? And if you don't understand who Jesus really is, is He really your Savior? No, because who gives... And by the way, who gives you understanding in all of this anyways? Holy Spirit. Spirit. It's not your great intellect, believe me. It's It's not your brain that sorts this out. It's God who gives you insight into that. So what are the implications of this? The implications of this is that we don't need to be afraid... To give people the complete gospel message, one of the problems that we see in modern evangelical um, evangelism today is the is the pressure to sort of lower the standard. All right, um, come to Jesus; he'll make you help, happy, he'll solve your problems, and we'll worry about this obedience and lordship and what we're about like a theological gunk later on. Um, but just sort of come to Jesus. Um, Jesus didn't do that in his presentation, did he? The rich young ruler came and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus basically said, well, I'll tell you what, go sell everything. Now, that wasn't the answer, was it? Is that the orthodox answer? Do you sell everything in order to be a Christian? But where was his heart? Where was his desire? And what he was basically telling Jesus right then and there is that, I want salvation, but I'm not willing to do what you tell me to do. Now, understand that we all have to come to that point where we're willing to do whatever Christ wants us to do. And I think we all reached that desperation point when we came to know the Lord. I remember talking to Ellie, that exchange student who was staying with us, and she she struggled with this because she wanted to become a Christian, but she wanted, like she said, I want to keep one hand on the steering wheel of my life here. I don't want to let go. And as long as she wanted that one hand on the steering wheel, nothing happened. then the day came at Good Friday service when she just said, okay, I'll let go of the steering wheel, and if it crashes, it crashes. And that's when God slid into the driver's seat, and she became a Christian, and she passed from death to life. She gave up. She let go.
1: Which is equivalent to that bumper sticker with well-intended meaning, but wrong. God is my co-pilot.
0: No, God is the pilot. You're right. you, you you're the passenger. You're not even a co-pilot. You understand that? You're the passenger in the back seat. Without the back seat driver's license. All right? Um, and there needs to be a willingness to do that. And what happens when I've seen in evangelicalism, they, is we're scared to death to walk up to somebody and give them the hard facts of the gospel for fear that they're not going to believe. Well, listen, folks, what kind of... What kind of salvation is it if you're if you're not telling them what the real deal is, right? I mean, how would you like to sign up for the Marine Corps thinking you're going for a vacation on Hawaii for four years only to find out you're in the Marine Corps trenches? I mean, they, they what does the Marine Corps do? They set the standard high. They say, you want to be a Marine, it's going to cost you this, 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 and they lay it out. And guess what? The people who want that and are willing to pay the price become the Marines because they're not going to be turned off by the hard sell and that's the same thing with the gospel folks you don't save any i'm, I'm off track here pontificating a little bit but you and i don't save anyone the holy spirit does and so i can i can take the gospel that jesus gave in the scripture i can make it high i can tell somebody right to their face if you become a christian it may cost you everything you may have to give up your father your mother you might lose your job. You might lose your life. It may cost you everything. I don't know that. You, you, you may not have the Cadillac in the driveway in the mansion that they promised you on TBN. You may not get that stuff. It may, you may have to give up everything. And if that person is being drawn by the Holy Spirit, if that person is being brought to that point by, of conviction by God, they don't care what it will cost them. And that's that's the gospel, folks. Don't water it down. Don't say, "Boy, you know, if I tell somebody, you know, that they might lose," well, I can't do that because that's that'll turn them off. Well, what is implied in that thinking when you do that? What are you implying? Christ, isn't enough. Christ is enough, and what do you have to do? Help out. You have to sell the gospel. You have to help them out. You got to water it down. You got to. You've got to somehow make it acceptable. And what happens in Christianity is so we've got a lot of gospel presentations out there that water the gospel down to the point that we get everybody, every Tom, Dick, and Harry, and Sue, and Mary, and everybody to believe, but they don't really believe because they've not been given the real deal. And so what happens when the persecution comes along, and the trials come along, and they lose their job, and things don't work out the way they want? What do they do? See, i abandon, abandon it and go the other way. We don't need to water it down. We don't need to lower the standard. We don't need to, to somehow think that we've got to sell the gospel. And it really bothers me when you have these gospel presentations that sort of say, um, come take our presentation. You'll be more effective and you'll lead more people to Christ. How do they know that? What are they assuming in that statement? That's up to you. It's a technique-driven kind of thing. Now that doesn't mean, understand what I'm not trying to say here, that doesn't mean that you don't want to become a better communicator of the truth. It doesn't mean that you don't want to be able to hone your skills in presenting the true gospel. That doesn't mean that at all. It just means that back in the back recesses of your mind, you need to understand it's not your gospel presentation that's going to save anybody. It's not your technique that's going to save anybody. It's the Holy Spirit that's going to save that person. So you don't have to worry about I said the wrong thing and they're not going to go to heaven all because of me. You don't need to go down that path, because it's really not up to you anyways.
2: We always learn that uh, in Vanderlei, that you not take it personally, because we are just a tool. Mm-hmm.
0: Your jo- yeah, somebody said your job is to get the meal from the cook to the table and not dump it on the floor. Right,
2: right. The tools. Okay, you didn't cook the
0: meal. All right. You didn't cook it, you didn't put whatever. Your job is to get it from point A to point B and not drop it, mess it up, follow it up along the way. And that's why when you, when you see throughout history, you see the great revivals, the preachers of the great revivals, they didn't water it down. And the great revivals often happen in times of great persecution when becoming a Christian would cost you your life. And it didn't, it didn't stop people. Some of the great revivals happened during, you know, the bloody reign of Mary, where they they you were burned at the stake. If you owned a Bible, if you were caught with a Bible, you were burned at the stake as a heretic, and it didn't stop people from believing. We're we're afraid to death today that if we say what Christ really said in the gospel, that people are going to be turned off and walk the other way, and. The answer to that is, if they are turned off and they do walk the other way, then they're not being drawn by the Holy Spirit, and that's not the kind of convert that Christ is interested in. And that's why when the rich young ruler came and Christ raised the bar up high, he went away sad, because Christ was not going to say, well, wow, okay, believe in me and we'll work out the obedience and all of that stuff later on. We'll sort through that later on. But let's get you on the track to heaven. It didn't work that way. There's, there's a price to pay. And one of the things we're going to talk about as we work through this is for us the price is all that we have for all that He is. You have to give up yourself. You have to give up your own idea of how I'm going to be saved. You have to say, I abandoned that. And that's what Paul was doing in Philippians 3 when he said, I, before I became a Christian, before I saw Christ, I was a Pharisee, a Hebrew, circumcised uh, the whole nine yards. I mean, I did everything. And then when I saw Christ, everything I was banking on, I saw as rubbish, manure, scubalon, excrement. And I pitched it all to know Him. And the power of His resurrection and, listen, the fellowship of His sufferings. He wasn't afraid to suffer with Christ. We've got people today that are scared to death to suffer. And when the trials and persecution comes along, they're scratching their heads saying, wait a minute, What's wrong? And the answer they have to come up to is what is right. If you're suffering for Jesus, you're going to suffer persecution. I like what one guy said. I forget what he said. He said, one of the problems with pre- preachers today is no one wants to kill him. <laughs> and the idea there is that they're not... You know, what, what's, what's the Joel Osteen Christianity? Come to Jesus and a wonderful plan for your life. Well, wait a minute. There is a wonderful plan later. Not now, necessarily. You may not get it now. Benny Hinn says, I want the streets of gold, not later. I want it now. And my response is, well, that's the only gold you're going to get is right now, Benny, because you don't have a part in the later. And we water it down. And we we somehow are afraid to just come out and tell, tell somebody, you know, it might cost you everything. You may lose it all. But if you're truly being drawn by the Holy Spirit, it won't matter because you'll 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 understand the value of it. So got off a little bit there, but as I was thinking about the, this from last week, I wanted to you know sort of work through this a little bit. And any comment? Everybody's quiet out there. Is it?
2: We all think that okay, we're going to valley moments, but we don't want to stay there. It's like you have to learn to stay there and say, "Okay, God, what do you want to teach me in this moment?" You know, and it hurts, and they might like, But it's going to give you character and make you more like Christ. And I think forgive that.
0: We don't we 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 sort of in the back of our mind think that there's going to be valley moments. But like like you said, we don't want to stay there. And, we, and when we're in the valley, we somehow think there's something wrong with me. There may not be anything wrong with you at all. That's what Job felt, right? I mean, scratch it, You know, what is wrong? What did I do? Well, he didn't do anything wrong. That wasn't the point. God had a higher purpose. But what we need to do, come to in our Christian life is understand that we have blessings beyond comprehension as Christians. But the real payoff is not now. It's an eternity. That's the payoff. And in this life, as Christ said, you're going to have tribulation. But be of good cheer because I've overcome the world. It may cost you everything. But if you're truly born of God, if you're truly a Christian, it won't matter. You'll pay it. Because you understand the value of that. That's really the, the story of the parable of the pearl of great price. Here's a man who's seeking for something valuable. and he finds something of immense value, what does he do? He liquidates every asset he has to get that one thing. And what is Christ saying? When you see the gospel for what it is, what are you willing to do? You will liquidate everything you're depending on for that one thing. In this case, you do put all your eggs in one basket.
1: It's like a runner running a race.
2: And he's getting to the end, and that would be heaven, you know. And it's like he's not letting the encumbrances along the way slow him down. Right. He's, he has that goal in mind: is to reach heaven.
0: You read the devotionals for this week.
2: <laughs> no, we're studying it in Hebrew. Yeah. Yeah.
0: But um. I
2: like the idea.
0: Well, think of the person who supposedly comes to Christ under Joel Osteen, who's being told that life is going to be a bed of roses. And your best life now. Well, theologically think about it. Who has their best life now? Believers or unbelievers? Got it. Your best life is not now. His theology is off-base to start out with. And if you read anything by him, shame on you. And if you have one of his books, use it to start a fire. Over the holidays? Who is it? Joel Osteen. Oh, okay. No, I don't have nothing. So we are better to handle
2: the Christians Christians
0: than, than We are. But see, we're willing to do it. Why? Because we know that there's an eternal purpose behind it. This is not all there is. Right. There's an eternal purpose behind
2: it, but. Um, right. God gives us a. Yeah. Get
0: the yeah, read, uh, read Paul over there in 2 uh, Corinthians. He says, we're chased but not caught. We're down on the map, but we're not out for the count. Why? Because we, have, we bear about in our body the dying, the, our self-dying, so that this treasure may be seen in earthen vessels. What treasure is that? The treasure of Christ seen in a clay pot. Your clay pot. Full of a great treasure. And what makes the clay pot with treasure in it valuable is the treasure in it, not the clay pot. And Paul saw himself as that. And he gave up everything. I think we as
2: Christians understand something. And I know this is a very simple way to do it, I explained it to the kids. That when they face adversity, they have to remember that we know who wins in the end. Mm-hmm. We know that they win. I mean, we may, we may not know every action, no. but we
0: know who's going to win. And sometimes along the way, you got to trust God on that. Just say, Well, I, I trust God that He's going to work it out. I'm not sure how this is going to work out. Right. Um, that's the James 1 5, right? If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God in the context of that passage is trials. If you're going through a trial and you're not quite sure what's going on, ask God. And what will He do? He'll give you the wisdom and understanding to go through the trial. That's that's His promise. But for the Christian, the way is always through the, through the f- trial, not around it or over it or under it, but through it. And God will take us there. So. All right, well, with that said, let's get into our real topic. And we'll come back and talk about these. But I wanted to clarify that that up front. that, That don't be scared to death to tell people the real deal. The real cost of being a disciple. It may cost them everything. Don't be afraid of that. Because if they are truly being drawn by the Holy Spirit, if God is truly working in their hearts, they won't care. They really won't care. Okay? They will come anyways. Um, what I'm going to do here is we, what we've done so far is we've looked at the origin of salvation, eternity, past. We beat the election, predestination, horse to death a little bit here. Um, we've seen the pictures of salvation in the Old Testament with Cain and Abel and Noah and all of them. Um, we looked at the concept of faith, grace, and the gospel. What is the gospel? What is the good news? Um, and by the way, one of the things I hope you understand that the good news is such that it's not something you can give somebody in five minutes and cover it all, right? It may be something that takes a little bit of time for them to understand. What does it mean that Jesus died for my sins? What does it mean that he was buried? What is this resurrection deal anyways? There, there needs to be some content to that. Um, and now we're going to look at the vocabulary words. And the, I was trying to think of how to do this And we could get bogged down in the order of salvation, what comes first, faith or repentance. And we could argue that. I don't want to get into that, arguing that. But I felt, well, let's just take the various words that we see regarding salvation in the New Testament. Let's just sort through each one of these and see how they all fit sort of together. That's that's how we're going to do this. So I'm going to start by repeating a little bit here. Um, These are the words we're going to be looking through, all right? We've all heard these words, but we're going to find out what the Bible says about them now. Faith, repentance, justification, adoption, forgiveness, regeneration, atonement, propitiation—all those words are used in the Bible. And by the way, don't be afraid to use them. Don't be afraid of those. I'm um, one of the. I'm reading. A, I'm, re, I, I'm going to probably get myself into trouble here again. but I'm reading an interesting book on. Um, it's really a small one. It's only about 160 pages or so, 70 pages. And it's on English Bible translations and the theory behind translation work. And uh, what he's doing, the, the author um, is comparing a, what we call a formal equivalent model to a dynamic equivalent. Let me explain what I mean. A formal equivalent translation is a literal word-for-word translation. You're taking a language A and you're translating it in a language B, and you're trying to do that at a word level, a word-for-word level. A dynamic equivalent translation is you're trying to take thoughts, idiomatic phrases, things like that, and translate them into comparative thoughts or idioms in the target language. All right? Now, just at a 20,000-foot level, which one of those do you think is best for scripture translation? You're a (laughs)
2: liberal.
0: This is the Word of God, right? When I try to translate a thought from one language to a thought in the other, what am I doing? huh? I'm putting my interpretation on it. And who's to know if my interpretation is the right one? Right? You, you, we, 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 we understand that you've got to do something with, cont- with, the, with the syntax of the words. All right? We understand that. that that's, that's understood. But the point is, the more you do a dynamic equivalent kind of thing, um, mode of translation, the more your interpretation is into that text. You are interpreting it for people. You're not letting people interpret it for themselves. You're interpreting it for them. Do you understand what I'm trying to get at here? Yeah. Dynamic equivalent. Now, what are the dynamic equivalent translations? The Message, Good News for Modern Men, the NIV, all those are dynamic equivalent. What they're doing is they're trying to give you a thought-for-thought kind of translation. Okay, A yeah. more formal equivalent um, translation is going to be something like the ESV, the King James, the RSV, the New American Standard. Those are more formal. ESV. ESV is very. Is I don't know about the NESV. But like the, the living Trans or the new li- NLT is a dynamic equivalent translation. So is the CEV, this century contemporary English version. All right. Here's the problem. Yeah. That begs question if there's a word
3: for word translation,
2: why is there more than one?
0: Well, because as time goes on, we understand more of the vocabulary. We have more understanding of what the words may have meant in the, in the original language because scholarship advances. All right? So there's no problem with that. The, with the deal, Why am I saying all this? I'm not on a rabbit trail. There's a reason for my madness. The reason for my mad, madness is this. When you go to, the, to some of the modern translations, the dynamic equivalent translations, they get rid of these words because they're confusing in their mind. Like you'll go to some of these newer translations, you won't find the word propitiation at all. It's not even there. But yet, it is a rich, rich theological word that gives us an understanding of what Christ's death did for us. And what's happening is when we get rid of that in the translation and we bring in some of our own um, interpretation onto that, we alter the text. We alter the message of God. Mm -hmm. Formal. Yeah, formal. And... The reason I'm saying that at this point is, number one, I'm reading this book, it's really cool, but that's just my own warped understanding of what's cool. But the other thing is, as I'm reading this, one of the points that's being made is a lot of these words that that are so rich for us, they're getting rid of. There's another translation I call the Simple English Bible, S-E-B. And their goal is to reduce the vocabulary of the Bible down to 3,000 words, no more than 3,000 words. The vocabulary now, the King James is around twenty thousand. so if you're going to take twenty thousand down to three thousand, what are you doing? Yeah, you're doing an awful lot of interpretation for people. All right, you're doing a lot of interpretation, and 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 look at think about this way. Isn't that an insult to people in a sense? Well, we understand that you're just too stupid to understand what propitiation should mean. So we're going we're to replace that with some other thought that we're going to add in there because you're not bright enough to figure that out.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: The dynamic equivalent is good for a commentary but not as a primary
2: right.
0: translation. If you want to look at one to, to, to see how somebody might have looked at that, have at it. But I would never use it as a, as a primary Translation. I would never use it. I would use the NLT. I wouldn't use the NIV. I'm personally. Personally. I wouldn't use the NLT or the NLT or the NLT or the NIV or any of the dynamic equivalent ones as a primary translation.
2: Huh?
0: I use the SV personally. But the reason I say that is because when we talk about these words, you might go and try to study them in your own Bible, and say, "I can't find this, in it. I, I can't find propitiation. It's not my concordance." Well, that's because somebody thought that that was just too steep a word for you all to figure out, so they had to replace it with something else. So, the King James
2: version is that formal? Formal.
0: I'm not a KJV. Yeah, that's for another topic discussion. I'm not a KJV only person, but I am saying for your primary Bible, who do you want to be doing the interpretation? You or some scholar sitting in a swivel chair somewhere who decided to change some words around to make it simpler for you? That's what you need to ask yourself. I do
2: that it waters it down. Mm-hmm. And you would agree
0: with that then? Yeah. And, and again, I'm not saying that these are demonic versions. I'm not going there. And they're okay if you want to use them as a reference. You know, if you're studying in your ESV and you say, well, how did Eugene Peterson see this passage? Pick up the message and take a gander at it. That's fine. All right? But the, where you want to lead them is to a more formal, equivalent translation That that is the words of God. Because then, I mean... Stop and think about it, folks. This is not a novel. This is the very words of God. So how should we treat them? Pretty seriously, right? And and if the Holy Spirit put propitiation in the verse, He put it there for a reason. And you might have to explain to somebody what that word means, but once you explain what it means, it opens up an understanding of the sacrifice of Christ that you don't have if you don't use that word or you try to water it down with some other phrase. Marshall, you're going to... Yeah. The New King James is a good one. They're eight and how old are they?
3: You read it, and you we'll really understand what the But, you know, you think back that if we're commanded to, to study diligently, and if we're obeying that command, God will enlighten us to understand, if he chooses for us to understand. But you think in Old Testament, Nehemiah, uh, which was the first thing that uh, Ezra did, you know, he had the scroll box on, everybody stood up and he had exposited, you know, so he preached, and he had expositors there that exposited to the women and the children who were there. They didn't have a watered-down version of, of, of his five books. They had what Ezra had, and with was in terms of the little ones that the sand. So I, I take that to our children and say, Okay, well, you know what? If the little children imagine Nehemiah and Joshua's dead, and understand what's being taught to them, and so
2: the they is here.
0: Yeah, the one thing... Um, I'm going to embarrass Mars a little bit, but um, one of the things he's been doing with his kids who are... What are they? How are they now? Seven and ten. Seven and ten, seven and ten is that they are seven and ten-year-old theologians, and they can understand it. See, what we get is we get the idea that when you're seven and ten years old, you need to be playing with Barbie dolls and G.I. Joes and video games. And that's just baloney. Um, you look at some of the great... You look some of the great, I mean, I'm not talking about the wussy, I mean the great men of, of, of church history, and they were reading Greek and Hebrew at five and six and seven years old. All right, that, That's the caliber. They can learn it. And I asked his daughter, in, who has just studied on the resurrection of Christ, I said, uh, how do we know that it was a real resurrection and not just a fake one? And she rattled off six or seven theologically reasoned, arguments that it is a real resurrection and was not what they explained in way. She's 10 years old. She's got it. She knows it. You can do it. The Bible is understandable. You don't need to water it down. It's sort of like going to law school and they say, well, we've decided in law school that our vocabulary is just way too deep for most people. They just can't get it. So we're going to change all the vocabulary of the legal system now to water it down. We're not going to use more than 3,000 words because you lawyers are just too stupid to figure it out. What are you saying to people? you're saying that they're not intelligent. And one of the things you'll find is the more vocabulary you have, the more you can understand and articulate. There's there's a direct relationship between the vocabulary you have and your intelligence. There is. When you go look at some people and all they know is ug and ug and ug and more ug, th- th- there's a level of intelligence they don't have. The more vocabulary you have, the more you can articulate. And the Bible is given by God for us to understand it. The Holy Spirit is there to help us learn it. You don't need to take words out because they're too tough for people to understand. Use the word, but explain what the word means. That's all. Just explain what it means. I got on two hobby horses today. This is not a good thing. Um, but but it is, it's, it's something very, very serious to me. And as, as I'm reading this book, and I'm becoming more and more and more convinced that, you know, as Christians, we need, to, we need to learn how to read the Bible and read a solid translation, not somebody's translation or interpretation for us. Yeah, paraphrase the thing. There may be a place for that as a devotional guide or something like that, but if you really want to know the Word of God, you don't need to pick up one of these other translations. Get a good, solid, formal equivalent translation as your main Study Bible. And then use these other ones maybe to supplement it. But, anyways, what we're going to do is we're going to look at these words and and what they really mean. Okay? And not just, um, hopefully, and by the way, if your Bible doesn't have these in it, why don't you find one that has the words in it? How's that? All right? Um, We talked a little bit about faith, so we're going to go through this sort of quickly. We've got some new people here today, so I want to just reiterate where we left the last. Class, because we went through it fairly quickly. What is faith? Faith is really one of the most often used words to describe our activity in receiving salvation. We're saved by grace through faith. All right? And what is faith? Faith is active, it is never passive. And really, what it is here is what I said is a belief in God which results in some action on our part. You believe God, and as a result of that, you're going to do something about it. It's not just a belief in God. That's what you're going to read in your devotionals this week, as you read through James, James chapter two. What good is it say you have faith and have no works? How do I know you have faith? The devils believe and tremble. I mean, that—that's you're you're no better than a devil. If you just believe, your belief needs to result in some action. And we've seen that as you read, th- for example, as you read through Hebrews 11. Um, what did you find in Hebrews 11? Every one of those people that believed God did something. And some of them, it was a pretty successful kind of deal, right? Abraham got a nation. Uh, Moses, he left Egypt, but he became the leader of the children of Israel. But then there's a, and others. Others were sworn asunder. Others lost everything. Others, it cost them their life. But all of them, what? Are examples of faith. And their faith resulted in them doing something about it. Rahab had faith because of that. She hid the spies alright there's an action and that's one of the things we need to understand because what we've done in modern Christianity is we've we, we've sort of been pulling those two concepts apart okay and what you believe can be disconnected from what you do but that's okay that's okay we see that in politics right politicians say one thing but they're doing something else there's no consistency there there's no yeah, there, there's no consistency and we see that in our own personal lives. You can have somebody, you know, nominated to be the head of the IRS that don't pay their own taxes. There's a there's a problem there. Okay? In parenting, it's the same thing. Don't drink while you've got a beer in your hand. You know, don't smoke. You know, bad smoking's bad. And the, the we, we disconnect that. We live in a world where we've disconnected those two things. We can't disconnect them. They're connected. They're, they're, they're joined together. The Bible knows nothing of a faith that doesn't do something. It doesn't know, it doesn't understand that as a concept. A faith that does nothing? That's no faith. That's an invisible faith. Your faith has to do something, it has to respond to something. And it's built, as we talk about it, on facts. There's things that you need to know. My faith is not a leap into the dark and hope that somebody catches me. I have a An educated leap into the dark. Because there's evidence that God is there. There's evidence that there is a God. There's evidence that God exists. I'm not just saying, I'm going to flip a coin and okay, I believe in God instead of being an atheist. There are evidences for that. Um, They don't lend themselves to tangible proofs. They do exist and can be understood. Saving faith is based in the fact of Christ's substitutionary sacrifice for sin. And the fact that we can escape condemnation for our sin by placing our trust in Christ. Salvation is not a leap into the unknown. It's based on the facts revealed by God in the Scriptures. It's not just a leap off into the dark and hope that God catches you. That's the neo-evangelical thought. The leap of faith. You've heard that, the leap of faith. You just sort of leap and hope that God's there and, and whatever that means to you means whatever it means to you. It's There's, there's no tangible... Um, proof of anything and now again can I prove that Christ died can I prove that scientifically no I can't but there's evidences for it isn't there there's evidences all over can I prove to you 100% that God exists no but if you look out around you what can you be led to conclude very quickly there is a God out there, there's, there it's, you can't explain this any other way You can't explain it any other way. So it's based in facts. But then these facts have to be affirmed by us as true. Um, Okay, Christ died for sins. He was buried. He rose again the third day. I have to make the next step say, I believe that's a true statement. I believe those are true statements, that that really happened. If I don't affirm the validity of those facts, the process stops there, Right? I don't go any further. You've got to affirm that these facts are true. There are many people today who are aware of the facts of salvation, but they don't affirm the truth of that. That's sort of like what you see in America today, where you got people saying, Look, you know, you believe the gospel and Jesus and all that, and that's great for you, have at it, good for you. But it doesn't work for me. That's really what you're seeing today. Your faith is great for you. You believe that. It's obvious that it makes you happy. It's obvious that, you know, it gives you some kind of ability to cope in life. But I don't need your crutch. I've got something else. See, they, they might affirm that those facts exist out there, but it's not true for, for them. It doesn't matter whether they believe it or not, because it's all a self kind of thing. The devils believe and tremble. They got the facts down. They affirmed the fact they, if you don't do that, the devils know more than you do, because they at least affirm the, the truth of this.
1: Um, just back to what you say earlier, uh, you know, about the right the, the best versions of the yeah. uh, that word, the devil, really is the demons, because there's only one devil. Mm-hmm. And so if I have the new, the NDKJV, and it, I think, has devils, not demons, I'm not sure enough have to check. But the point is, there are some minor things like that,
0: which... Well, understand that we have the devils and devil. Devil is a formal name for the devil. But it's understood that devils could often be used to refer to demonic forces. For example, the people, people um, said he has a, a devil... Or a demon. I mean, they're, they're interchangeable words. Okay. okay, so even though we have the formal word devil, devils and demons are sort of interchangeable words. Although the devil is, we know who the devil is. Okay.
2: Yeah, but it does have demons. Yeah, it's, it's demoniac. It's, it's demons. It's yeah. demons.
0: Yeah. So you're better off than, you know, I mean, the demons are better off because at least they affirm that. The demons know about the gospel. They affirm it. I mean, they know that. But then you got to go a third step, okay? The third step is a subtle step and that is you you've got to take these facts that exist out there. You not only got to affirm that they're accurate, true, valid facts, but then there's another step. They're true for you. They apply to you. And again, in this postmodern age where truth is sort of relative, and this is where a lot of people get balled up. They might say, "Okay, you believe the, this, the, the stuff about the gospel about Jesus." And um, I might even go so far as to say, yeah, there's some validity to that, but not for me. It's not for me. It's for you if it rings your belt, floats your boat, have at it, wonderful, but it's not for me. And you've got to internalize, you got to say, it is for me. It does apply to me. There are people, hell is full of people who believe the gospel and believe the truth and some of them might even come to the point where they believed it was true for them, but they didn't take the next step, which is to trust. What does it mean to trust? You abandon everything and believe that those true facts apply to you. You place your faith in Christ. This is where you become a believer. You don't become a believer by believing the facts. You don't become a believer by affirming they're true. And You don't even get there by... Affirming that they're true for you. If you don't take the next step and say, I believe. And I believe to the point that I am willing to abandon everything I'm counting on and trust in everything that God says. You're not saved. There has to be an abandonment. You know, some people say, well, you don't have to do anything to be saved. Yeah, you do. You have to give up what you're holding on to. All right? now who's going to enable you to do that? The Holy Spirit is going to enable you to do that that's not you. the Holy Spirit will help you do that so it's not a human work you can't and some people want to say and this this is a big argument they say well, what you're saying is you're, you're telling you you have to work for your salvation in the sense you have to give something up no that's not a work because who's allowing you to do that God, God is doing the work in you it's not you it's god in you it, it's no more than I can make the argument and say, well, if you say that you have to believe, that's a human work. It's all by grace. You shouldn't even have to believe. You're just sort of in. Now, we, know I'm, we, know I'm, we understand what we're talking about there. You have to give up. You have to let go. And that's what the rich young ruler didn't want to do. He wanted to hang on. I want my riches. Now, had he said, okay, fine, I'll be back in a couple of days, most likely Christ would have said, no, that's not the point. The point is, you have to be willing to forsake all and follow me. That's what he said to the guys. You know, They said, Lord, we'll follow you wherever you go. He said, well, you know, the foxes have holes and the birds of their have nests. I don't have any place to sleep. And what happened? I'm out of here. I don't want to sign up for that. I don't want to to that. What about that guy that said, I'll follow you wherever you go. And he said, well, uh, but let me go home first and say bye to mom and dad. No. Let me... Uh, Go home and bury my father. The idea is, let me go home, wait till dad dies, he'll get the inheritance, then I'll come follow you. No, I don't want that. If you want to follow me, you're going to abandon everything right now and you're going to drop it all and you're going to follow me. And if you don't, you're not obeying. You're, you're not making this step of abandonment. There isn't a step of abandonment where you're abandoning all that you are for all that he is. And he and God enables you to do that. That is a work of the Holy Spirit in your heart. But let me ask you a question: All of those here who, who are believers, is that how you remember your salvation? You came to the end of yourself, and you said, "I give up." What about you? I said
2: no.
0: Mm. Hmm. But later on, what happened. Yeah. Initially, we might say, "I don't." That's too big a price. But at some point, for those of us who are truly born again, we're going to be brought to that point where there's a willingness, at least, to abandon, offer Him. There's a willingness.
2: Hmm.
0: Right. Some of them can truly come to the Lord at, at a young age. The mm-hmm. And see that that's that's the thing it is with me. I sort of have a hard time saying, okay, Alan, when were you saved? Well, I could think of a couple of three times where it's possible that that happened. But I know something right now. I'm willing to give up everything for all that He is. He's my Lord. He's not a Lord. He's my Lord. And somewhere along the line, the light came on. I understood. And some people, it's a very dramatic event. Other people, it's sort of a quiet kind of thing. But for those who are truly born again, there's an understanding that I'm placing all my trust in Christ and nothing in me. That's where true salvation happens. And then what is the final word? We've got to make the acrostic. Worth, F-A-I-T-H. Hope. What's hope? Hope is a present certainty of a future reality. I don't have the streets of gold yet, but someday I will. I don't have... A home in heaven but someday I will I don't have a glorified body but someday I will have that that's a future thing for me and it's a present it's a present certainty it's not a man I hope the Browns can win today well that's sort of bad hope isn't it um, it's not that it's, it's I know this is going to happen I just don't have it now I will, though, someday. I will have it. So that's what faith is. Faith is abandoning all that you're, all you're trusting in for all that He is. It's a giving up of yourself. You have to give up what you're depending on. You have to give up. What did Matthew have to give up?
2: It's
0: tax collecting business. Uh, Peter and, and John.
2: Fish, fish.
0: Drop your nets and follow me. What do they do? They drop their nets, left their boats, and follow Christ.
2: Yeah.
0: They just left them where they're at. I
2: think the more you have uh, the power, the financial wealth, it might be harder.
0: How hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven? That's tough, isn't it? Uh-huh. To give it all up uh-huh. for for Christ.
3: I think I see
2: more people who are poor and needy and they're looking for some form of salvation or something, they're searching. You know, they Mm -hmm. they realize they need. The rich, they don't realize,
0: they don't need anything. Right. You see, that's the starting point of the gospel, the need. The need. You're under divine judgment. If a doctor comes to me and says, I want to cut you open and see what's in there just to find if there's something wrong with you, I'm not going to have that done. But if he says, you know, I, the test here shows a lump in there and we need to get in there and take that thing out. Cut me open, buddy. Have at it. Go for it. You know, I'll be there tomorrow. Um, I have a need. The need causes me to go through the discomfort. If there's no need, there's no calling on Christ. There's, and that's what Christ basically told the Pharisees. He says, oh, you guys, you don't need anything. That's why the tax collectors and the publicans and the sinners get in the kingdom before you do. You don't need you don't need my help. You're you're already righteous. Yes. Now he's being sarcastic when he said that. Yes. But. Um,
1: there's over the people in here who hopefully you saw this in the paper because I don't have it all together. But a couple months ago there was a front page story of a, a young man, young as I don't know, thirty something perhaps, I don't know. Who had sold his house and his possessions for the sake of using the money to sell, bi- or not sell, but not sell, give Bibles away as a witnessing tool? He would witness, and he would give the person a Bible, and uh, it I was such a moving story.
3: Yeah, I saw part of that. Um, husband showed me that he opened his house and he was giving things away. Now you have a, a whole house there mm-hmm. He was just people. He was just giving them everything he had away. Right. It, it's like okay, free. Yeah. Come I mean, in. You just give. Yeah. Come in. Right.
1: Get whatever you need. And mm-hmm. somehow but, it was connected to Bibles. And yeah. He, has, he, has, <coughs> he had. I keep saying. <coughs> he, fell, he gave away. He gave, it, and it he gave away. Meaning donation so he could get more Bibles to give away I, I, it was such a move, and so I'm so atypical of over, you know mm-hmm. to emphasize something Christian but it was right on the front page
0: and I yeah. Him. yeah God doesn't call all of us to give everything away but are you willing um, I read the book the whole in the gospel I got that and read the whole thing um, in a very yeah fast reader Um, but I read the whole thing and one of the interesting things here's a guy who's the president of Lenox Corporation multi-million dollar position making Boku bucks and he gives it all up to become head of world vision why did he do that? he's willing to abandon it all he's willing to give it all up he had it all He, he was the president of, yeah he said, I was driving a Jag to work every day, you know, all that kind of stuff. And he said, I gave it all up because God called him to this ministry. Okay? You ought to read the book. It's a very good book. It's a very good read. The Hole in the Gospel. Pastor Jim said that that's a good book to read. It's called A Hole in Our Gospel. Um, I'm sorry, Barry. I'm sorry. Uh, i sorry, him. I
3: would suggest we all need to review Ecclesiastes chapter 2 as Solomon points out...
2: Wisdom, knowledge, wealth, materialism, it's all because
0: you could use. Right. And, and, you know, one of the things that we all have to ask ourselves, and we're all getting on these rabbit trails today. I don't know what it is. It's rabbit trail day, but that's just the way it is. But I look at myself and I have to, I have to ask myself, do I have enough? I have more than I need. And I know after reading this book, the hole in the gospel. You know, one of the things that came to my mind is how much junk do I really need? I don't need a lot of stuff. You know, I need to get. In fact, I need to start unloading some of this stuff. You know, um, look at all the junk we have. And I'm a freaking pack rat. I'll tell you that. I'll, I'll save everything. You know, but there comes a point when we gotta. We got ourselves ask ourselves: Is is, is it enough enough? It's not that God is telling you go sell everything and become a pauper. That's not what he's saying because he requires us to be good stewards of his resources to manage it. But we need to realize we're not the owner of it. And sometimes we just we have so much junk in our lives that it clouds the voice of the Spirit. And we need to ask ourselves those tough questions. But it's an interesting book to read. Go Go read it. Let's try to start looking at repentance here. We may not get through it all. One of the things that... I'm sorry if I picked on your NIV Study Bible. Oh, no, that's not okay. Yeah, <laughs> I just saw that over there, big NIV, I said, "Oh, she's going to hit me with it." Um, yeah. Um, what is repentance? We, we toss that word repentance around, and one of the dangers in Christianity today is that there is a there is a thinking process going on that we don't need to um, preach repentance. That really, um, we need to preach the gospel in a positive kind of way. You know, accept Jesus as your Savior. He's going to make life nice for you. But we certainly don't want to hit too heavy on the repentance part where you actually have to repent of your sins and actually have to turn from your sin. And the problem with that is the Bible says that that is a necessary component of true saving faith. It's a necessary, It's it's not an auxiliary component. It's not an optional piece of the it is a necessary component. And in fact, in Mark 16, in the Great Commission of Mark 16, the statement is to go and preach repentance to all nations. Not faith, but repentance. All right. So what is repentance? When we talk about that word, what is it? Well, it is not reformation. It doesn't mean changing yourself. That's not what it's talking about. Because, by the way, can you change yourself in and of yourself? Yeah, can the leopard change his spots or the Ethiopian change the skin? Nope. You can't either. You can't decide one day to change yourself. It's not remorse. It's not feeling bad. I mean, did Judas feel bad about praying Christ? And the Bible says he repented. People say, wonderful, he believed. No, he felt bad. He felt bad about it. He was remorseful about it. But it was not true saving repentance. Did uh, Esau feel bad about selling the birthright? Oh, you bet he was. He felt bad about that. So it's not remorse. It's not just feeling bad about something. That's not repentance. That might be conviction, but that's not repentance. It's not penitence. The idea of penitence is what? Yeah, to do something in order to assuage your conscience. You know, when you go to the, in the Catholic Church, the priest, and he says, Oh, go do X number of Hail Marys or whatever as, as a sign of penitence. That, 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 to, to assuage your, to, to earn God's salvation or forgive. That's not what repentance is. It's not penitence. It's not doing works. And this is an important thing it's not merely changing your mind about who Jesus is. There are some good evangelical Christian scholars who want to make it into just changing your mind about Jesus. Repentance is you're changing your mind about who Jesus is. Jesus is this, now he's this. And they take that from the word metanoia, which means to change your mind, to turn around. That's what the, the Greek word is, metanoia, to change in your, your direction. It's like I'm going this direction and I turn around and I head off in this direction. It's a change of direction. It's more than just changing your mind about Jesus. It, that can be an element of it, but that's not the whole picture of what repentance is. All right. So repentance is not just these things. What is it? It is a voluntary and sincere, and this is the point, sincere change in the mind of the sinner causing him to turn from his sin and go in another direction. It deals with the mind as well as the heart. It's to say, I have to change my mind about what I am doing and see it for what it is. It is sin. I don't want to go in that direction. I want to go in this direction. It's to change your direction. Now, if you change your direction, what's going to accompany that? Behavior, heart, attitudes. All of that's part of repentance. When you see that in the Bible, you don't see people coming to the Lord and not changing their life in the Scripture. They just don't do that. Jesus did not tell the woman taken in adultery, uh, okay, I'll forgive your sins, uh, sort of try to clean up your life a little bit, cut down. No, He said, go in, sin no more. Okay? And when you see true repentance in the Bible, you see that there is a turning from sin and a turning to God. It's to go in a different direction. It's a change in your mind. It is a change in your heart. It is a change in your direction. And all of those are evidenced by what you do. Okay? Where do you see this? Well, when John the Baptist, when he came along, what did he say? Repent for the kingdom kingdom of heaven is at hand. What is he telling people to do? To change their mind and their direction. To, To change it. And that's what he says in Matthew 3.8, bring forth therefore fruits meat for repentance. Bring forth fruit evidenced of true repentance. Let's look at Matthew 3. Um, in Matthew 3, it says... Um, I'll just read the, the chapter, the few three verses here. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John is preaching repentance. And he says, And John wore a garment of camel's hair, a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region around the Jordan about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sin. So what is coupled closely with repentance? True repentance? Confession of sin. Don't tell somebody they can come to Christ and not repent of their sin and not confess it. That's the gospel, folks. That's what it is. You're not coming to Christ just to have a wonderful plan for your life. You have to come to Christ acknowledging your sin, confessing it, saying, I am a sinner, I need help, and be willing to abandon that sin. You don't come to Christ and say, I'm going to take the fire insurance part and I'm going to just keep on doing my own life the way it is. That's no salvation. What is John preaching? Repentance and confession of sin. Both of them. (coughs) <coughs> and, and the reason I get, I, I raise my voice now, is because people want to split that apart come to Jesus and forget about the repentance and confession stuff that will come later no that comes up front that's part of it and John is saying it right here and then he says uh, when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism he said you brood of vipers who warn you to flee from the wrath to come that's not very user friendly is it no. seeker sensitive forget it that's not John Hey, here comes the snakes. Here comes the vipers. And the viper there was a poisonous asp. That If if you're bit by it, you are in deep trouble. He called them snakes, asps. He said, who who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Later on, he's asked, well, what do we do? And What did he say? If somebody asks you to go with him a mile, go with him
2: two.
0: Two. Soldiers, be content with your pay. If someone needs something from you, if he you needs your coat, give him your cloak also. What's the point? The point is this repentance is accompanied, salvation, salvific repentance is always accompanied by a confession of sin, a turning from your sin, and a turning to God. And if you present a gospel where there is no need for confession, no need for repentance, that is not the gospel. It's something else, but it's not the gospel. That's the gospel of Joel Osteen. I'm sorry to pick on him, but that's, that's his gospel, folks. You ask him about the need for repentance and confession, and it's like, well, we don't want to get into that. You know, just come to Jesus wants to make, make you happy and fulfill your dreams. You realize God didn't save you to fulfill your dreams. He saved you to fulfill His dreams for you. That's why you're saved. Not so you get it. It's for His benefit, not yours. And throughout the New Testament, this concept of repentance is always accompanied by works, by action. Now, who's enabling you to repent? Who enables you to change your mind? The Holy Spirit. It's not you. It's the Holy Spirit working within you. But there is an abandonment of your sin. Did Cain feel bad that God didn't accept the sacrifice and that he was being punished by God? Sure he did. Was he repentant about it? No. He wasn't repentant about it. He felt bad about it. But he wasn't repentant. He didn't see it for what it is. He didn't turn to God. He just felt bad that he was caught. Yeah, he felt mad. He got angry with God. It's expressed in the ministry of Jesus. What is He said in Matthew 19, But go and learn what that means. I will have mercy, not sacrifice. For I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to
2: repentance.
0: Why didn't He come to call the righteous to repentance? They don't think they need it. It's not the righteous and the true righteous He's talking about here. Who's He talking about? The Pharisees, the religious boys. Why is it that they don't need repentance? Because in their mind... There isn't, they're not sinning. They're, not, they're the good guys. That's why. What do I need to repent of? That's the rich young ruler's problem, right? What do I lack yet? I've done all this stuff from my youth up. I've kept all the law. What am I still missing? Get
2: rid
0: of your riches. And, and, and the point is, he wasn't willing to abandon everything. He wasn't willing to turn his back on every. This is all I'm placing my trust in. He wasn't willing to turn his back on that and go in another direction. And that's what Paul did. Paul said, here's, here's my Judaism. Here's my circumcision. Here's my Pharisaical life. Here's all the stuff I'm banking on. And I see that as nothing but rubbish. So I'm going to turn my back on that. And I'm going to go in this direction towards Christ. It's an abandonment. It's a true abandonment. Christ is saying, this is what I mean. I don't want... I don't want your sacrifices, I want your mercy. You find that in the book of Isaiah, the the books of the Old Testament, where God is saying, you come to me, you bring your sacrifices, you show up in church, you sing your hymns or whatever it is you did in those days, and meanwhile, you're stealing from your neighbor. You're defrauding the person that's working in your field. You're cheating people out of money. I'll tell you what, you keep your sacrifices, you keep your burnt offerings, and get out of my presence because I don't want to see your face. Leave. Because I want repentance. I want people who have a broken and contrite heart. Isaiah twenty six. Who gets to see God somebody with a broken and a contrite heart? That's the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? You realize you have nothing to give God. Blessed are those who mourn over what? Your sin. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They get filled. It's all about spiritual things. It's not about poor and economically. And what's Luke thirteen five say? If you don't repent, you'll perish. You'll likewise perish. What are they talking about there? Well, what happened about those guys that the Tower of Siloam fell on? What about those guys that Pilate mingled their blood with their sacrifice? What about them? Were they worse than us? No, except if you repent, you're going to perish just like them. Repentance is a necessary component of salvation, folks. Don't split it apart. And I'm three minutes over, I'm going to yell that. So we've got to quit. We'll pick up here next week. Father, thank you so much for this day and for this time of study. Help us to ponder these truths and understand them. And thank you for this time together. In Christ's name, amen.
2: Well, you're going to have to it again.